0: Hi, this is Against Everyone with Conor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. I'm very excited to share this episode with journalist, author, and filmmaker John Ronson. I'd like to start this episode by talking about another podcast, though. Um, it's a leftist podcast I like called Bad Faith Podcast. It's hosted by Brianna Joy Gray and Virgil, Texas. Um, in a recent episode, Brianna is weathering a very intense conversation where someone was saying to her that they wanted right wingers, uh, specifically racist right wingers, people that identify with Nazi projects or Proud Boys um, and so forth. One um, of them killed, didn't care about their lives, that sort of thing, and Brianna held her ground and spoke on this episode with compassion and care and also about her own fears and uncomfortabilities as a black woman in America and also as a leftist who is trying to understand people um, who became racist, who became even violent racist, people who hold uh, Nazi or Nazi-like ideologies and trying to understand how they might be disadvantaged, primarily using a class analysis. Rihanna brought up many times, can we de-radicalize people? And the guest who, I guess you'll just probably go look this up, so I'll just say, uh, is Talia Levin, kept saying that deradicalization isn't scalable. It's unrealistic. The only solution in this is to humiliate, to dox, and even to kill. Now. I am not saying this to draw lines or sides between the two exactly. Um, I don't think that there's any reason to go after uh, Talia Lavin here. I do however want to say that I admire how Brianna uh handled the conversation and you can all go watch it for yourself. I'll put a link to it in the show notes or a link to the Bad Faith podcast uh, patreon. What I was struck by Brianna's patience, presence, and integrity. And the way she kept insisting, look, I want to understand. I want to try to organize with people, organize them away from these ideologies, organize them away from these positions, help them understand their own class uh, position, how they're disadvantaged through class and maybe, you know, find ourselves working with people who used to be Nazis but weren't, used to be racist but have tried to undo their racism, so on and so forth. It brings me to a point that I try to make on this show often, which is that we must fight for those we fight against. We must fight for those we fight against. Right now, And I think is evidenced by that conversation, but also some of the themes that have been coming up on the show lately and in this episode. We aren't presented with good options by the left more broadly for how to bring things forward. The two best known pathways the left presents are violent revolution or absorption into the powers that be. In other words, you either just have a really intense... Uh, flashpoint, <laughs> a revolution that happens in many ways that include things that are nonviolent, so I won't just say only violent, but that some people are going to need to be killed. Um, and this is not the only version of revolution, but let me just say again, the two best known pathways left presents are a violent revolution or absorption to power. So you have that revolution or You just simply get absorbed into all the power structures of um, law, Congress, you know, trying to gradually change things by being a democratic socialist and trying to elect Bernie and so on and so forth. And generally you'll be corrupted along the way in the process and lose all hope of actually changing anything. But why are these the limits? why is human change not just changed by force or changed by law which is anyway so often another form of force why is human change not on offer in other words why can't we do something different the the two options that i presented which again are not the only options that the left presents but you know they're <laughs> well-known ones they aren't good options and anyway they're materialistic ones and I want to talk about that a little bit. I, you know, I think I've talked on the show before about how I grew up in an area that was one of the highest concentrations of neo-Nazis in the U.S. when I was growing up. And how the kids I grew up with were preyed upon by older organizers. So in my high school, there were people who had swastika tattoos, um, had Nazi tattoos on their inner lips, on their dicks. Um, <laughs> it was just, you know, would go to um, white power punk rock shows, um, and I was punk rock. My my, I was in the punk rock scene. My friends um, were punk rock kids as well, and because we were all into that kind of music, we ended up hanging out a lot with the skinheads that would go to the shows and some of my friends at the school were skinheads as well that somehow did not care or said they cared but pretended that they cared or, you know, ignored but said to their organizers that they cared that I was Syrian. Much less suspected to be (laughs) uh, gay but I wasn't out then. And you know, I could see. They would pass around literature, um, American skinhead, they would pass around screwdriver cassette tapes. um, That's a white power band. And that was all circulating in my school. And while I would not have gone to a white power punk show, certainly I would go to punk shows, hardcore shows, and skinheads would be there. And we'd just stand around and talk And that wasn't just me. That was, you know, the few kids in my school. There weren't that many um, black people in my school, but that was some of the black people in my school, the area, other Arabs, Asian kids. We hung out because we were punk rock kids, but we saw the exploitation that was happening. And we saw where it could be going And I also saw that um, the kids that I was growing up with grew up poor. And even if they weren't poor, um, in the case of, you know, the kids who were Nazis, they were growing up in a landscape with very little meaning. This sort of post-industrial area of Pennsylvania And so they were handed meaning. They were exploited by the meaning that was handed to them by these Nazi organizers. Um, One of my closest friends who had uh, Nazi tattoos uh, killed himself not too long after he graduated from high school. Definitely experiencing a total lack of meaning in his life. I obviously did not absorb and imbibe any of the racism, although we all did, I, I suppose, in our own way. But I didn't absorb a kind of Nazism, obviously. Um, and so I can't excuse the people who did, exactly. But I can understand the pressures that they were facing in my area where I grew up. The lure of countering <laughs> violence, um, the, the lure of a, of a counter-violence, of a counter-snark, of deciding some people's humanity is besides the point because they stand in the way or obstruct some unformed idea of class or political progress is also a danger. It misses that complexity that was happening where I grew up, and I'm sure is happening all over the place, still. And this is not to sympathize with Nazis, and unfortunately, Brianna had to stand up for herself on that episode and say, do you really think that I'm sympathizing with Nazis? She actually had to declare <laughs> that as a black woman uh, in the US, that she was not a Nazi sympathizer. Um, but just to say it should be obvious and that shouldn't have to be something that we say. And it's not, also it's not that I think that we should eliminate tactics wholesale. You never know what tactic will be needed when. And I appreciate Joseph boyes the artist, I appreciate his statement that life is too short to choose a weapon that does not have blood on it. Every tactic, every strategy, every technology we have is cursed and bloodied, that is true. And revolution in particular is performative. I don't mean because it's not realistic. Of course it is. But that doesn't mean it's not performative. So when we talk about violent revolution, when we talk about killing a group of people, um, to make sure that we will have some sort of political peace, we can see that there's a performativity in that, and also is not uh, really well-researched. And this does not mean that I don't have lots of sympathy for anti-fascist movements, historically. Um, I did an episode with Mark Bray, who wrote the anti-fascist handbook on this, uh, anti-f the anti-fascist handbook on this show, and that book really opens up your eyes to the importance Of direct resistance when needed. But without keeping in mind the statement of the French philosopher and psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan um, on revolution, revolution remains a danger. What did he say? Well, he said, you know, around the time of the student riots and revolution in 1968, around that time, seems a little indeterminate to me exactly when he said this, but some students came to him and said, what What should we do? And basically, Lacan said to them, you know, you don't want revolution. You want new masters. In other words, the process of revolution, sure, it was an active and dynamic move, but it was to re-evoke the power which it cut out, which it stamped out. A lot of that goes back to this idea of Sigmund Freud's this idea of lack or missing something or you know wanting what we don't have in in other words wanting something's absence so it can appear again so the little kid throwing a toy away and then reeling it back Um, the pleasure is in it not being there for a moment but then he always reels it back so this is part of Lacan's idea You want to stamp out the power so you can re-evoke it, so you can stamp it out again. And part of that is that there's a deep performative attachment to the identity of revolutionary. And who are you as a revolutionary if your revolution works? There is no true change without embracing contradiction, without embracing the fact that there will be these moments of tension that are irresolvable between people, between ideas, between visions of the future, between total worldviews, total fantasies and imaginations. All we can hope for without embracing contradiction, without embracing the fact that we're going to have to constantly confront people where they are, try to meet them where they are, and try to get them to find love in their hearts, and to share a kind of love with them that will open them up, is a state. That's all we can get. We can get another state. What if instead of a state, we put loving effort into creating a process? In other words, we enriched our ability to meet each other in love and understanding. And we created a process that always brought us back to that point. As a significant side note, <laughs> being in a few groups that have been demonized, being Arab, being a gay man, and for a decade a sex worker, I don't think the hard line of kill the people to get in the way of your political agenda works. And that's not to equate the leftists who are doing anti-fascist work with the people that want to kill gay men with Arabs and with men who want to kill sex workers. But I've seen that gesture aimed at me, and I have seen it aimed by leftist, quote-unquote, comrades. I've especially seen leftists wantonly, just, just luxuriously attack sex workers, particularly women, and attack gay men. I read this snarky book review a few days ago a few snarky book reviews have come out recently <laughs> um, that I find a little disappointing but I read this snarky re- book review that said basically look if we on the left um, convince people to think like us then we win and the only real question is how to do that without putting people in jail and executing them that's not the real question once the gulags execution violence once those enter the imagination even as a choice we don't want then we're lost maybe this all seems really scattered to you maybe you're like you're wandering around and you're not making a point um (laughs) in which case hi i do that sometimes but I am making a point, which again is that we need to fight for those who we fight against. And that is a contradiction in its way. And that is a contradiction that needs to be embraced rather than resolved by simply fighting against. Or simply fighting for. There needs to be a whole kind of networked, loving connectivity and understanding in the way that we proceed. In any case, perhaps you can feel all of this stuff I'm talking about waning. Like maybe you can feel the draining away of the weight of political performance. Snarky book reviews, Twitter pylons, politics that try to diminish the totality of someone's being to score political points. Perhaps you can feel it as I do falling away. I feel like this kind of performed outrage is losing its footing. You know there's that old adage if you're not outraged you're if you're not outraged you're not paying attention, but the way I say it is if you're outraged you're not paying attention. Outrage is distraction. It's a kind of currency, it's a performance. And it also means probably you haven't been in the game very long. <laughs> or if you are, you're performing. What's needed now and what I see happening, and what I think is exemplified by Brianna Joy Gray, and also in some of his works, most of his works, (laughs) Uh, John Ronson, my guest today, is intention in thinking, clarity in feeling, and purposefulness in action. It's a politics that unfurls itself from the love of the human being. This is a long intro they're not usually this long i don't usually have to wander around this much territory to get where i'm going but all of that comes to mind all of that comes to mind when i think of john ronson's work you probably know who john is he's a best-selling author of the psychopath test of the men who stare at goats of his book them which is encounters with extremists which is now 20 years old Uh, He created The Butterfly Effect, an Audible uh, original series about porn that actually gets it right. Um, He has written movies, including Okja with the uh, director of Parasite, Bong Joon-ho. And John and I met in 2012 um, before his book So You've Been Publicly Shamed came out. Um, His book about online shaming. It was a book that foresaw cancel culture and the unforgiving, totally certain, but utterly fragile outrage that I've talked about today. Um, The performative ideas of revolution, the performative uh, (laughs) ideas of violence in response to violence real and performed. We've been in touch since then And John's work to find the other, to offer compassion, to understand, becomes more and more evident with each project that he does. So I think you probably know who John is. I'm just going to leave it at that and move into the episode. Before I start, I just want to say, um, please do support the show. The show is completely listener-supported via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. And I have so many episodes. This is episode 163. <laughs> uh, recent episodes include uh, a discussion with Dr. Gwen Adzed, who is a forensic psychiatrist who works with serial killers and other violent offenders. Um, with Dan Gretton, who explores how people um, murder by policy, he calls them the death killers, people who sign a sheet of paper that ends up killing so many people with radical political journalist abby martin and with the creator of the midnight gospels duncan trussell so those are just some recent ones there's so many others backlogged (laughs) and uh i would love if you listen to the show and you have not yet supported it please go to patreon.com forward slash connor habib and support it the show is always free every episode is available to everybody And that's what I like. And I like my stumbling around trying to make a point in the beginning. I like that I am trying to have long-form conversations with people that can tease out nuances. And I like not always being a punctuated, um, piercing (laughs) kind of commentator, but rather uh, someone who's trying to leave room for lots of directions. Anyway. Anyway. That's all. Here's my conversation with John Ronson. hi everybody it's against everyone with connor abib um hello it's so nice to talk with you again john ronson hi
1: it's it's lovely to see you again connor the last time i saw you was backstage at Vicker street venue in dublin and before that the last time i saw you was in 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 this in hollywood in the san fernando valley um when i started <laughs> to make my porn
0: um odyssey That's your born Odyssey. It's right. I looked back and I saw, I looked at our first communication, which was a DM from you to me, which said, I don't even know how this happened. You said, You're the only person I know in porn. Can I talk to you? And I think it was maybe, it must have been for publicly shamed because that's how we met. but- yeah um'
1: that's it's funny that's not quite how I remembered it the other way around. I remember you I, I mean I'm sure you're right, I'm not doubting you, but I remember you contacting me and saying I hear you're doing something about about public shaming. This is like you know a couple of years before I published that book um have you thought about doing anything about sex and shame because I'm a porn star if you want to know anything more about my work, Google me, so I immediately googled <laughs> you and just thought. You know, like close-ups of your anus, and 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 then oh, well, I met well. you, and you gave <laughs> me just the most brilliant sort of introduction into the world. You said something that that was really like my guiding light. You said, um, you said, I think you said that all of the problems that porn performers face are because of the outside world, not the industry. Which I'd, I'm not sure that the word all I would I would agree with, but certainly many. the problems that porn performers face uh, um are are as a result of the hypocrisy of the outside world and and that line that you said to me before i had done any recording at all for that show just really you know was was the sort
0: of you know line that sort of guided me throughout the entire narrative thank you yeah the the there was the yeah i looked through that conversation as well yeah because i'm in you mentioned my anus in publicly shame, so thanks for that. Um, but
1: then- <laughs> <laughs> listen, Ed, listen. If you're going to if you're a serious book about about shame, you need to be funny <laughs> as often as you possibly can. So that, that was the reason.
0: <laughs> um, but you know, like, so I've been thinking about you know it's obviously been a long time i mean what is that 2014 or something and i've been thinking yeah. about yeah. how you know i've been reading your work since them which is now 20 years old this year and how you know these themes in your work conspiracy public shaming stigmatization psychopathy like in a in a way they're all about alienation in some sense mm-hmm. And so I wanted to maybe just talk about each of them and how they relate to alienation and how anybody that's listening to the show lately knows that all I talk about on the show is love. It's just sort of taken this really center point in my life. And so how they relate to that as well. But I think maybe because of them, we'll start with conspiracy because, you know, the intensification of the conspiracy, which I thought and maybe a lot of us thought had reached this sort of fever pitch during Trump era. It doesn't seem to have let up. And certainly today as we record this, or maybe it was yesterday, I'm really out of touch with us politics, but there's Mm -hmm. some sort of vaccine new vaccine policy or whatever, which has bred all these conspiracies and so forth. And I just want to see where you think between you know, the, to, 2001 to now, um, all of this has been sort of uh, gathering, and and where it's at now, comparatively.
1: I think the clues were there from the start
0: that this was going to become
1: something that would take over the world in in a way. Mm. Um, I, but I think I only know that in retrospect. When I look back on my very earliest days in in the world of conspiracy theorists. Uh, I remember like I, I would I remember going to a gun show somewhere really early on, and like the most popular table at the gun show wasn't the AK-47s. Actually, I have no idea whether gun shows sell AK-47s <laughs> or not. Um, but <laughs> but but the table with the conspiracy mm. videos, the VHSs, which were terrible. This was before charismatic conspiracy theorists came along, so you were just stuck with the yeah, two boring men droning on about the all-seeing eye on the back of the dollar bill in like a three-hour public access vhs yet they were like flying off the flying off the table at their gun shows (laughs) and and as i say this is before you you know alex jones came along with his um archery skills yeah well i mean. They had no auditory skills. And so 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 there was lots of clues like that, which made me, which now looking back make me realize of of course this was going to proliferate wildly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it it's interesting because around that time was when I mean conspiracy theories had this sort of um, I don't know, this kind of leftist resonance, resonance almost, where you know, like I was friends or became friends with a lot of people of that disinformation group. Do you remember them? It was run yeah, by this yeah. guy, Richard Mesker. So Doug Rushkoff and Grant Morrison and all these people. And and I remember thinking, and that has such a profound influence on my life. And so conspiracy had this kind of like clout to it where it was like well, why would you? I mean, their first book was called "You Are Being Lied To," right? So it was right. like, it, yeah, it, there yeah. were books back then called like "The
1: Hidden Persuaders," which yeah. was uh, all about how advertising, you know, would, would sort of play these subliminal tricks on you. Um, so you, you're right; um, you're absolutely right. A lot of the early conspiracy theorists were on the left,
0: um, and, and so it was all cracking open. Then it sounds like you know, not just for the for the right, you know, but it seems to have landed us really, really mm. seems to have landed squarely in the, at least in the popular imagination right now in the right.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, not, not, which I think doesn't mean that the left don't succumb to conspiracy <laughs> theories too. Um, I, I can think of a few recent occasions when when people on the left succumbed, but I would say by and large as a, as a weapon, it's, it's the right um, mm. who are, who are utilizing it. It's, it's almost like a kind of, I, I described it to somebody the other day. It's a kind of grievance storytelling. It's mm. it's story. It's 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 great storytelling. Um, after I stuck into Bohemian Grove, um, I went to visit Harry Shearer, who's the voice of Mr. Burns in The Simpsons, uh, who had been to Bohemian Grove himself, and and we got got talking about conspiracy theorists, and he said, you know, they're the great narrative storytellers of our age. It's just a shame that what they say is just kind of bullshit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There weren't no, I want to caveat, I want to say something um, earlier. I said there there were no talented conspiracy broadcasters until David Icke and Alex Jones came along. That's not true. There was Art Bell. Mm-hmm. Um who was hugely popular in the nineties. He was more your right wing. I think when when all the leftist conspiracy theorists like the ones you just alluded to were coming up, at the same time there was a parallel right-wing conspiracy culture emerging. Um and a lot of it was coming from the show called Coast to Coast AM mm-hmm. with Art Bell. And I went to Art Bell's house and people with guns came up to me and told me to leave. <laughs>
0: You, uh, you weren't invited, I'm taking it.
1: No, he lived in a <laughs> heavily fortified compound. If you can imagine, do you know what Paisley Park, because I went to Prince's house once, or so, oh, I went to Paisley oh. Park once, do you know what Paisley Park looks like? Mm-mm. It basically just looks like a big mall, um, like a fortified mall. <laughs> you know, it could be a Target or, or, or you know. Um, but that's sort of what our house looked like too, like a mall in the middle of Perunk, Nevada.
0: A mold, but, but covered but with barbed wire, if you were. Yeah. I mean, so just to sort of pull this apart a little bit more, I mean, I think, what, you know, when you when we talk about the conspiracies being on the left or the right. I mean, so at, we'll, we'll talk about porn maybe a bit later, but like as a sex worker, certainly like the grand conspiracy that all sex work is human trafficking and, and human, you know, like all this kind of stuff. That's I mean that you know that's a that's a conspiracy that governments have adopted and lead with people that we consider leftists and journalists and that sort of stuff and I think that you know there are you know there's a proliferation of like really widely accepted conspiracy theories, but you know the 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 popularization of this for people I wonder and I don't know if you see this but you know, I think September 11th, especially, you you wrote that book before September 11th, right? But when, when September 11th happened, and it just seemed so, I'm not making a value statement on this either way. I'm just saying what it felt like. It just felt like the explanation couldn't be correct. Like It just felt incorrect to a lot of people, and I think continues to to a lot of people. But then the Iraq war- yeah, Not to me. Yeah,
1: no, I'm
0: not putting it on. I'm not putting it on
1: you. But, but well, I just remembered. Like, all the, I was at somebody's house once, and and um, his girlfriend was really annoyed with me because I wasn't a 9/11 truther. Mm. And I and I heard her, I heard a saying to him, "This is what you should tell him. Like, if the if the planes <laughs> if the planes flew into the building at, at different angles, how come the buildings fell down in exactly the same way?" Well, I wanted. I, well, I wanted to say to the. I wanted to say to, her, what you were structural engineer. You know, how, you know Yeah, I, I thought you were a ceramicist. So <laughs> no, I, I never doubt. I never doubted. Um, the, the the, you know the what we were saying. I, I've been watching a whole load of nine eleven documentaries lately. Mm. I, um, in fact, I watched that wonderful one that's on Hulu um, in conjunction with the 9-11 Museum, and there was a shitload of people walking up and down those stairwells. You know, that's a lot of people who decided... To all, ignore the bombs that were there. But, 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 I think the reason why there is a proliferation of conspiracies on the left and on the right is because I think there's a big relationship between conspir- conspiratorial thinking and narcissism. And um, you know, narcissists want to be the smartest people in the world. And how the smartest people in the room? And how do you get to be the smartest person in the room? Sometimes it's by coming up with new information that's better than the information that the world has. And you're going to get that on the left and on the right.
0: Yeah, yeah and, I mean go ahead, no, go ahead, go, go Jan.
1: I'm gonna say one last thing. Yeah, please. Um, which is that the other reason why you get proliferations of conspiracy theories is when powerful people behave in conspiratorial ways. Sure, sure. And and I think people on the left and on the right can be forgiven uh for becoming conspiratorial thinkers mm. if that's the reason. After 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 nine-eleven. Our leaders behaved in extremely conspiratorial ways and took us into a war that just, you know, continues to ruin the world.
0: Yeah, well, that's where I was going. So I'm glad you landed there because I was thinking like it's not it's not necessarily about September 11th per se, but really the fact that it resulted in wars where lots of people watched their loved ones killed for just a nothing ridiculous mm-hmm. response that was kicked off by something that seems so strange and out of whack with the rest of history you know and so yes. then especially a lot of those people live in conservative areas or are poor or you know whatever join the military for whatever reason around that time and so i think mm-hmm. that that wound like this a lot of this just seems like still that wound you know of of going to the into those wars
1: well i i, I mean i you know, would there have ever been an, an ISIS? Would there have ever been those beheadings? Uh-huh. Doubt it. No doubt. Totally. Um, so yeah, so that wound—it's um, very real. And uh, I mean, I think
0: <laughs> you mentioned. It's funny you mentioned a doctor once on a podcast that I was listening to who said something about five G causing coronavirus, and um, you know, and all this uh, and. And I forget what else it was that you were talking about. You'd watch this video and John, that was my doctor. Like, this is one of the crazy oh. things. So wow. he was, he was my doctor in San Francisco when I lived there and he was just a really loving, amazing, grounded, sweet person. I mean, he, you know, some people might think he was just crazy from the start because he used lots of complementary and alternative medicines in his practice along with, you know, his regular MD um allopathic stuff but for me he was a great doctor and then there was a certain point you know he's long since not been my doctor but he just sort of diverged and I Mm -hmm. saw the pressure just crumble and crumble him and it really he got backed into a corner where he's making these public statements that first were doubt but then turned into not doubt but total Certainty. certainty Yeah,
1: yeah. It's it, it remains. I think the great. It's a great mystery of the modern age. Like what what is happening? This this kind of epidemic of people <laughs> losing their minds by being too online um, is still. I mean, I, it's still a. It's still a mystery. Like I, I don't think I've read anything that really explains it. The closest that comes to explain is, and I'm certainly not saying this is true of your doctor or all people who fall down the rabbit hole, but I do think narcissism has a lot to do with it. I think if you if you look at how narcissists, how people with that disorder walk through the world, then you, you will see that there's very real connections between, you know, that that personality disorder and conspiratorial thinking. So that's got something to do with it. Um, people being trapped inside bubbles. I read something interesting the other day, by the way, that said that there, there isn't evidence there isn't evidence that the YouTube algorithm will radicalize people. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Like, like it just seems so obvious that you know you you you're on one video and then the algorithm takes you to another video, which takes you to another video, mm. and you get more and more radicalized. There was a big study which I can't remember. Where, where I saw it recently that said that 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 it doesn't, that the algorithm doesn't class people.
0: No, I mean, that, that I mean, it makes sense to me in the sense that there's all these claims that people watch more and more extreme porn because, like, the algorithms take them down, like the, and that's completely false. Like, that's been, like, completely disproven. So, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe there might be something different about looking for certain kinds of information, but what I would think the algorithm would take you towards down the rabbit hole of the information you're looking for but then you would look for different information about different things like you know yeah. if, you're, if you're looking for you know was 911 an inside job and then you look for like a cake recipe it's not going to be like this cake recipe was developed by you know like <laughs> by yeah. you know child molesters or something like that but yeah i no i mean it makes sense to me i'll if you can find that send me the link and i'll put it in the show notes because i'd like to see it yeah it was it was
1: sort of pretty much all over Twitter, so uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find. That thing you just said about porn and algorithms is interesting. Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day between, uh, um, between two... Um, well, a, a very anti-porn second-wave feminist and another second-wave feminist who wasn't anti-porn, who was kind of completely cool with sex work. Um, and the the, the anti poored woman sort of said you know paul is is all about watching women you know be be abused it's all about you know she just sort of gave that argument um and I wanted to like yell into the podcast um that i read quite recently that one of the top search terms now is is female pleasure so doesn't that ruin doesn't that like spoil that argument like <laughs> like if if people watch porn because they hate women it's like that's the reason why people want then why is female pleasure one of the most searched Mm.
0: terms i also wonder about the seo as like any kind of guidance system for what people want because if you just want porn and you can just type in a blanket term but like you would probably have to search for like men in pantyhose being flogged so wouldn't you have to actually specifically look up something, whereas the general way of looking, you wouldn't necessarily be typing a search term in. So I always wonder yeah. about, I mean, I'm sure there's some SEO person that can explain to me why I'm completely wrong about this. But yeah. using that as data gathering to explain what people's desires are seems off to me because you would only look for the specific thing if you if found you it was to. scarce in your you know, way of you know, finding yeah. things normally.
1: I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there who get a bit you know a bit like you know they've been on they've been smoking weed for a while and now they're gonna try and get <laughs> right. a weed. I'm sure, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a bit of that going on but um but but it was I, I I thought it was a very positive you know again I'm I haven't got the data in front of me so if I'm wrong I apologize but <laughs> but when I read that female pleasure was one of the most you know or, or videos that show female pleasure like you know among the most popular porn. Videos, I thought, yeah, I, th- I thought that reflected well on human society and I and, and was at odds with the blanket ideology that you get that, you know, porn is misogyny.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I wonder if the only way really is to somehow ask people and get an honest response, which you never will when it comes to desire. I mean, and even if they give a response, just psychoanalytically, the response they give, even if they're being honest, is not likely to be true, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, what does that, what yeah. would that even mean? But, well, so wait, I just want to pull this back though to the to the thing about the narcissism you're saying, because I think, you know, it's actually, like for me, I, I talked about this at the beginning of the year, like there's this, there is this real like, a pandemic or a, a, a epidemic of certainty, which is really freaks me out where like honesty is not honesty and uncertainty is not permitted, and the way that that's hardening people into their sides is really really yeah. bad news where you know like um you know in like in psychoanalysis there's the concept of like <laughs> if you see a ghost. It's not that you saw the ghost that would make you psychotic. It's that you would never allow for any other explanation other than the one you chose. And so, like it's the certainty around the way you express what you saw, not even the con maybe you did see a ghost. Who knows? But see saying who knows allows for some Mm -hmm. uncertainty and some space. But there is this hardening and and that seems to be plaguing every sort of aspect here and it and it's really pernicious because it keeps people in their own communities so in a way yeah. where no communication is possible so you can even be in a loving community of people that's bound by this you know border of total certainty that doesn't allow for any like sort of blood flow into other communities like or circulation So you can be loving and still be cruel to everybody else that's outside the boundary, which is really, really terrible.
1: Yeah, I've long felt that there's a tyranny uh, to people needing to feel certain about things, the tyranny of needing to have an opinion about everything all the time. Mm -hmm. It is a tyranny. Um, Yeah, I am certain that certainty (laughs) is a bad thing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, it's, it's funny, there is a sort of, um, you know, you have, to, when I was writing say, so You've Been Public Shamed, I never put this in the book, but there was this guy I met um, who was a prisoner and he said, uh, he'd been a prisoner, he'd been in jail for a crime that he didn't commit and he said, the worst thing that you want to, he said, the worst thing that you want to be in prison is a fat boy. So I said, what's a fat boy? And he said, it's, you know, somebody weak. Uh, you don't want to be weak, you know. You don't want to be a fuckboy. Yeah. So if somebody attacks you, you have to like attack them back twice as hard. And I'm thinking this is a really odd, you know, set of rules to form a judgment on a person on whether or not, like, they behave like a fuckboy when being, you know, hit or yelled at. Like I, in that situation, would would undoubtedly be be a fuckboy. <laughs> But I don't think that makes me... Like, why judge me on... You know, what, I, I think the same thing is true about uncertainty. Like, it's, it's considered... Mm. Um, in the same way that prisoners are, uh, you know, want to kill fuckboys, uh, I think, you know, people hate uncertainty. And for me, uncertainty is a, is a, is a skill. My, my work is all about trying to see... Every perspective, you know, to be inside everybody's heads that aren't mine. If you if you go to a situation with certainty, it kills nuance. It kills ambiguity. It kills humanity. It kills narrative. Um, certainty equals. Yeah, especially ideological certainty. It's the worst thing for a journalist. Um, And I think, by the way, this is why people like like my like my books. You know, my books are journeys where you change your mind. You go down one road and you think, "Oh my god!" And now I understand. And then something else happens that makes you change your mind. And you're, you know, both me as the writer and then my readers as readers are are like, you know, twigs of the river of the story. If if I valued certainty, my books would be a lot worse so you know so so not only is it is it the wrong thing to feel just as a human being I think if you're a writer it's a terrible thing to feel
0: yeah well I mean it's interesting because one of the things that you talk about so much is anxiety which I also you know experience in really terrible versions of itself but but anxiety is also totally certain, you know, and, and it's mm. in its way. Like you fixate on like a, one one of the versions I've heard you talk about is thinking that your son has died in some horrible crime or whatever. And so yeah. it's like actually,
1: it's, it's never a crime. It's always a, it's always an accident. Oh, an so accident. Okay, sorry. sorry. Yeah, scaffold egg has fallen on him. Yeah, yeah. I don't, or, now now, like, now I've added a new layer for you to be afraid of. But yeah, I, I think <laughs> he, he could also be killed in a murder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But um, but I think that. You know there's this that anxiety fixates on an object and becomes so certain, and it doesn't mm. allow so I think it's interesting that like there's almost like some weird i maybe you don't experience it this way, but for me too, experiencing anxiety, trying to live in some sort of uncertainty, open heartedness, some kind of trying to meet people without bringing the baggage of certainty along, and yet then I will suffer from anxiety almost as this counterbalance where certainty kind of has to find its footing in your life or something in a terrible way and it just stands there and it's like this is the image this is the image this is what's happening this is what's happening and so Mm. then I have to battle with that all the time within within myself
1: yeah isn't it funny that you're right an anxiety attack is about is about envisaging something with certainty but it's always a what-if worry like we know that Anxiety worries are always what if worries. Mm. Rarely, uh mm. rarely, when we're anxious about something, an anxiety that begins with "well, what if," mm-hmm. usually the anxiety is unfounded, almost always. And in fact, if we're if we find ourselves in a I don't know. You tell me if it's the same for you, but if I find myself in a genuinely anxiety inducing situation where anxiety would be an appropriate would be an appropriate response. I tend not to get anxious. I tend to, like roll up, <laughs> I tend to roll up my sleeves and handle the situation very well. In the days before lockdown, I knew exactly, you know, how much hand sanitizer to buy. Mm. You know, not so much that you end up publicly shamed in the New York Times. <laughs> actually, no, I only bought like <laughs> two or three. But you know what I mean, right? Um, so yeah. actually, when we, how, so how were you before lockdown? Were you, were you anxious and panicking, or did you no. feel? Like, okay, I mean, no, exactly. I was like,
0: yeah, I called my friend. Um, my friend Duncan Trussell and, and who's been on the show and we were both like, I feel like we've just been waiting for this moment. Like it was because of anxiety because exactly.
1: we anxiety we rehearsed these situations and I had a thousand times.
0: Yeah, have you seen Maybe. the movie
1: Melancholia, the Lars von Trier movie? Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm, the ending when she's... Yeah, attracted. she's
0: completely placid because she's been depressed her whole life. She's like, well, I know what it's like to have nowhere to go and the horrors of the world are crashing into you. What are you going to mm-hmm. do? You just sit here and you let it pass or consume you. You know, it becomes, yeah, yeah. you realize the survival aspect of mental um, challenge or neurodiversity or mental illness, whatever you want to label it, and you just see... But the problem is, most of our lives, hopefully, aren't lived in that constant state of emergency. <laughs> you
1: know? Well, yeah, no, it's very. T- I mean, it's very tiring. Um, but um, uh, but at least you know, it's you know, I said uh, just when lockdown started, like the first week of lockdown, I tweeted some. I, I don't tweet anymore, but I tweeted something like. Um, you know is it just me, or do other people with anxiety feel strangely calm and i got I got more than a thousand replies, and it was ninety nine percent oh my God, you know I've been saying the same thing. I suffer from generalized anxiety, and I've never felt so
0: calm uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> so there was so there was definitely there was something in it.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I mean, a lot of people I think have studied that since, but I think there was a tipping point for me that, I mean, it's not like it stayed, it stayed like that for about a year and um, then like around January or something started to fall apart. But hmm. I mean, I think, I think. in Yeah. I'm only talking about the beginning of, of the lockdown here. I, right. I think, yeah. I think
1: people then responded to everything in in. You know, different ways. I'm really only talking about the okay. There's a pandemic on its way. What do we do? I'm just talking about that
0: moment. Mm. Um, You know, like even though, um, even though we're talking a bit about like how conspiracy hasn't gone away, like just sort of moving into this other aspect of your work with this kind of shaming, public hatred, like this kind of bile that spit out people. That actually seems to be losing its sting in some way I think like I you know yeah re- recently there were this like very recently you're not you're not using twitter right now your twitter journey is very interesting because you're on and off all the time but the the um... oh no i've been off
1: for months this is the longest i've ever been off
0: (laughs) once in a while i'll reply
1: like like i've kept it open because i've got some stuff about to come out and so (laughs) i that's that's the problem
0: always isn't it it's like the fucking like cane that pulls you back on the stage instead of pulling you off but like yeah yeah. but no it's god honestly it's god
1: i i feel like somebody i feel like like a yeah. smoker who smoked two hundred cigarettes in a day, and thought, "Okay, enough's enough."
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I definitely it's calmed for me. Like nothing, nothing touches me on there anymore. I only say mm-hmm. things that I like or things that like en- en- enrich mm-hmm. my life. It's just fallen away as yeah. you know this this place to have any kind of argument, you know, for sure. But mm-hmm. um, but did you just so, But you just alluded to how
1: you think that sort of. I mean, were well, you basically saying that you think cancel culture is kind of reaching its
0: end? It, it's it's not, here's the thing, I don't think it's reaching its end, but I think that people aren't feeling the impact of it anymore. So in the past few days, there were all these like um, negative book reviews about two writers who are quite, I mean, they're really sweet you mm-hmm. know like <laughs> sweet is wrong like one one of them's been on my show maggie nelson she's great and then sally rooney you know the irish author oh yeah people yeah. just sort of saying all these kind of venomous horrible things based on some of these negative reviews which were quite sensationalistic and i, mm-hmm. I thought really just poorly written but the but it was interesting like i nobody it was like no one and maybe because Sally and Maggie aren't on Twitter but I do think like no one really felt like "Hmm, this doesn't have the same kind of weight it doesn't have the same kind of pool anymore making Mm -hmm. someone the main character of social media for a day it feels like it's erasing itself in some sort of Meister Eckhart like Mm -hmm. erasure like as soon Mm -hmm. as it's written down it feels gone and done rather than having any kind of staying power and it seems embarrassing now I think to people but there's a there's a bit of um there's a bit of uh, shame in that itself almost. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, it doesn't have the
1: the weight anymore. People uh, people did it too much. It was um, it just happened too much, and people got sick of it. Um, it like like a you know like a TV show that goes on too long. Um, my son my son said the same thing to me the other day. He said, "I you know the, the people are just sick of it. People are just sick of it now." Well, I mean, but um, what do, you think? do you have an you, idea of what well, happened? Well, I think it's partly because i got into trouble for saying this before, but I'll, I'll say it again. I, I, I think, you know, one thing that's happening is that the young are creating a set of rules for themselves that they're finding impossible, mm-hmm. possibly hard to live by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when that woman was, was fired from, the, from editing Teen Vogue for tweets that she'd written, for anti-Asian tweets that she'd written when she was 17... Mm-hmm. Um, I think that felt like a sort of bellwether. Not, not that you know, not that her tweets weren't offensive, but she, but it was a, it had been a long time ago. She was under age. She was a child when she wrote those tweets. 17 a child, um, mm-hmm. and that just sort of felt like a little bit of a kind of harbinger. Is it harbinger or harbinger? I think it's harbinger. But is it GIF or JIF? <laughs> it's it's a, So how come it's, it's GIF? supposed how to be
0: JIF? But it's how GIF? come it's JIF?
1: <laughs> I'm
0: I don't have your answers today John <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah I, I, I think people I think that was something like no. I, you know kids you know people are kids are going to come along and look at the older generation who were the ones who were really going through. A, Going for the public shaming, mm-hmm. I think. Well, that's that's not a world I want to grow up in. It's like you know, everybody wants an egalitarian world of where everybody has has the same chances. It's not as if people are turning against the, you know, wouldn't necessarily turn against the aims of progressivism. Mm-hmm. But I, don't, but I think kids coming up now are just so. Well, I want to live in a world where if I say the wrong thing, everybody screams at me. I'm not even right. getting paid for being on Twitter. So so I I think it's inevitable that the younger generation will come along and, and reject it.
0: Yeah, no, that I think that that's as good a theory as any I've heard about it. I mean it definitely it it it's um it's lost that it's lost that strength. But then I wonder, you know, with your book um which you got so much shit for I it was funny I was watching I was watching an interview with you or you're at Oxford. Yeah. And I could see you would visibly like as you're doing the Q and A. Even when the questions were nice, you're visibly distressed, and not just in your normal way of being distressed, <laughs> but you're just you're visibly yeah. distressed because you knew what was coming, constantly coming at that time. And so yeah. then, like this book. Then- oh my god, that was <laughs>
1: terrible. That um, it was it was Oxford. Oxford, it was the Oxford Union. That was actually one of my Nadeas. Um <laughs> I could, I could use up the rest it's of the. It's online thing for anyone
0: who wants to watch.
1: <laughs> well, although some of the reason why it was in the deer isn't online. Um, okay. You know, the Oxford Union has got such a um, reputation for being this, you know, one, you know, this like important, like, you know, comment, like everybody you can think of has spoken at the Oxford Union. Um, So I said, yes, and it's a beautiful, the building that they put you in is beautiful. Mm. It looks like Hogwarts, and it's the Oxford Union and all its reputation. But I had a bad, I had a bad experience with the Mm. Oxford Union. Uh, I turned up, um, and it's run by students. Uh, And because they're at Oxford, quite often they tend to be very entitled students mm-hmm. so so I turned up and it was like could it just give me like a quiet room just five minutes to get my head together before I go on stage and they're like oh of course no John come here and they were like pulling me they were like literally touching my arm and pulling me for photos and it was all like a big joke I was like a kind of I don't know some fucking play thing, you know, and and then and then I came on stage and there was a couple of very very social justicey people in the audience who asked a few hostile yeah. questions, but I didn't mind that. That's fine, and and anyway, I, I consider myself a you know I'm a left leaning liberal, so quite a lot of what I believe is exactly what they believe too. So, um, but then what happened was it was being live. I don't know if is it, it's probably foolish for me to say this, um, but somebody in the audience was live tweeting it. Um I need if I'm gonna tell the story, I need to get it right. So give give me half a second to just try and think about what, what I'm about to say. Okay. Um uh, uh I can't you know what? I, we can I say we can say that you're gonna approximate this. You know? Okay, well approxim approximately. So I got on stage um and I, you know, gave my talk, which is there for everybody to see. And at one point during the talk, I, I ad-libbed something about how, uh, or, or maybe it's during the Q&A, um, I made a joke about how, you know, as a result of all of this stuff that was happening online, uh, for the first time, um, white men are getting to know what it feels like to be objectified, mm-hmm. which is progress. It's um, so It was a joke, but it was also uh, not a joke. It's like, mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, maybe maybe it's a good thing, that that white men for the first time learn what, you know, women and people of colour tend to tend to know. You know, Chippendales, you know, bodybuilders. I'm sure, you know, you've been objectified, kind of. You know, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, days. yeah. But, but, you know, <laughs> never she, yeah. you know, gentlemen like me don't know what it's like to be objectified. So I was making a joke about that. Um, half joke, but half making a point. Um, and um, anyway, when I got back into the car, on my way, on my way back to my, in the hotel, I thought, oh, I wonder what the live tweeting is. I wonder how the, how the live tweeting of my event went. So it was literally, <laughs> John Ronson has taken the stage. John Ronson says white men are being objectified. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so I'd like, um, you know, I, I phoned them up. Because uh, already it was beginning to proliferate And this was late at night So I was thinking, God, by the time I wake up tomorrow morning This is going to be everywhere So I phoned the guy at the student union Who had been prodding Who I didn't like anyway Because he'd been pulling and prodding me And invading my personal space Before I went up on stage And I said, what are you going to do about this? You know that that's been taken out of context um, There's going to, you know There could be thousands of tweets by tomorrow What are you going to do? So they so they deleted the tweet, um, oh, and and then it, and then it all
0: cast. But but yeah, so that was my absolute That was that was my obscenity. Oh yeah, that well, it was. I mean, it was terrible. And I I remember. <clears throat> so I was with a friend. I won't say who it was because this is so stupid. But mm-hmm. when your book came out, I remember telling my friend, who is a journalist, "Have you read this?" And mm-hmm. my friend. I said, oh I think it's so stupid. That book is so stupid. And I said, Well, have you read it? And they said, No. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember yeah. thinking like, what like what could better exemplify what this book is about than deciding to have made the decision without having read it, and it seemed like that had happened a lot. And even I remember a book, the book review in the New York Times that simply said something like, um, "If only someone who weren't a guy would have written this." And I thought, "But, but this, yeah. this is not a, this is not a review." You but know that guy, that guy who
1: wrote the review in the New York Times, Corey. Uh, subsequently, again, I don't have it in front of me, but gave an interview later on to somebody when they asked him about his review of my book, and he basically said like I really hope I'm not getting this wrong I'd need to look at the quotes but what I remember is that he said something along the lines of um, actually I agree I agree you know with Jonathan's right but sometimes it's fun to be mean
0: uh, ugh, it's so ridiculous so yeah. i mean it all just points to the fact that this book is it almost becomes this like cursed object <laughs> where like mm. all the anxiety and intensity and gravity and weight of this time and this gesture that we've done concentrate themselves pre-concentrate in your book really and yeah. it becomes this this like um this artifact you know that yeah. can was- i can i
1: have a, can i sort of say something else about yeah this
0: yeah um Okay. Because I'm feeling a bit stressed out that we're
1: talking. It really did sort of, mm. you know, the, that stuff did stress me out. Um, but people really love that book, yes. and I yeah. and I don't get I don't get a fraction of the criticism mm. that other people who address the same subject get. Mm-hmm. Um, people like you know oh, I won't name names, but I don't get a fraction of that criticism. Made you know partly because the book's funny and a really good read, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like an adventure story, like all of my books. I think so I'm in probably. it, which really softens the
0: blow, you know, so for you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> another, yeah. It's it's funny. Another, another reason is because I'm my, I'm not an ideologue. I'm a, I'm a, I, I just, I'm interested in the way that humans behave. So I, I didn't come to the story with any sort of ideological predisposition And I and and I didn't come out of it with any ideological predisposition either. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, I so so most people, you know, it's easy and you know, it's easy to focus on Mm -hmm. you know on a small group of people who dealt with the book wrongly, and and it was bad. Like the thing, one of the things that hurt me, the, the. that just annoyed me the most was I saw a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic attacking my book on Twitter in a way that made me realise that they hadn't read it. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I DM'd them, and I said, like, I'm really sorry, um, but I, I, I saw what you... I don't, I don't know that you've read my book, so would you like me to send it to you? And they DM'd back saying, I'd be meaning to read it. Oh. You know, I don't know anyone... Other than a tiny amount of people who right. who, who read the book and didn't like it. I think anybody, you know, so, so I fell foul, I think, of of you know ideologues wanting to try and bring the book down before it came out. However, the books, you know, the book's successful, it was a bestseller, lots of people. Really like it, like most people, really. So I don't want to. I don't want to dwell too much. Both for no, my own no. mental, health, both for my own mental health, and also just for yeah. for, for factual reasons.
0: No, I understand how talking about it can also be re-evocative of the stress that happened that time, yeah. even though it's not present. And, I mean every- it's like,
1: why are we talking, you know, why am I thinking about the unfair mean, you know, the unfair things that people said when I don't think for a second about all the really nice emails that I get? You know, it's like, oh, that's nice. And then I forget about it. Like, I never bathe in the praise. So why, 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 why fucking, you know, tear my, you know, tear my skin off with the criticisms?
0: You should, you should I, I mean, I think I think that there's just like this. There's just this part of it for me. <clears throat> I mean, the reason the reason to talk about that book in a lot of ways is one to talk about this moment that seems to have passed, but also the sense of like, I mean, it's it's really interesting to me that you wrote a book about psychopaths. You wrote a book about secret military projects. You wrote a book right. about extremists, and that this would be the one that actually yeah. brought you. This kind Some, of intensity, you know, and well, people
1: love to people love reading about abuses of power when it's somebody over there who's exactly. abusing their power. Yeah. They don't like to read about abuses of power when they're the ones doing it.
0: Yeah, no, i mean, it, it, definitely the the implicating of the reader should have been a ta- a moment to reflect. You know, yeah. um, it, it should have the been people who really, me. You know, yeah. when when you tweeted the when you or when you wrote about the Justine Sacco thing, the first thing I did was go back in my. <laughs> My tweets would be like, see, what, what, what did I you... say about Justine Sacco? And luckily, and what I did. you say? Oh, you did. You I understand. said. Oh, I said. Um, I. am I'm so proud of myself, but I did. I did write. Um, this is not half as bad as something Seth MacFarlane says every week, or I said oh, something good. like that. So I was that's like, the, like what? The what's the? Well. What's the deal? Um, yeah. but a
1: friend of mine, as an old comedian friend of mine called Hattie Hayward. she told me a story once about doing this really brutal gig. At the Tunnel Club in London, and she was on stage, and people were shouting, uh, "You know, get off the stage! You can't, can't!" And then, and then um, later, when after she got off the stage, um, some guy came up to her and said, oh, I'm so like, I'm really sorry for all, you know." That was really uncalled for. People shouting all that stuff at you, and she said, "Oh, so you didn't, you didn't shout that I was a cunt." And he went, no, no, I would never do that. Uh, I shouted, burn the witch. <laughs>
0: some sense of separation well you're well well spotted for that because i certainly was an asshole on twitter at the time it's not like that one getting that one thing right absolves me of all the horrible shit that i said to other people at the time but i don't do it anymore i mean i largely (laughs) walked away from that but i mean i just think it's it's also just uh, no but it's also interesting to me that like in some sense like from that book on even though you still write about really intense things there is Mm -hmm. this move away from i don't know this move away from uh how do i think about that subject well not um, just that subject but like this kind of like like this poison or this evil in general like you know i mean moving into butterfly effect and the last days of august and okja and frank and all these other things like there's this m- movement into a different a different contour of life really and Mm. um and it was something that was in all the other books which is this extension of compassion and openness to people but it's like you leaned into and this is the sort of love part I think it's like you leaned into like well what if I focused on love and I I remember saying to you when you're when you're talking to me about porn and we were back and forth so much in the early days before um butterfly effect came out but it was like or before Mm -hmm. you and and I remember saying to you something like um I was like what if you just (laughs) I was like begging for anybody in the world to do this and I'm so glad you did it and did it so well I was like what if you actually just instead of writing about all the bad things that porn says like what if you actually just left that out and just wrote about what porn yeah. was for the people that were making it, you know? Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm so pleased. Like, I'm so pleased that I I met you. And Chantel Preston as well, I remember earlier. Chanel, on. yeah. Uh, Chanel Preston, yeah. sorry. And um, uh, I'm, I'm so pleased because it was absolutely right. The, the, the other reason why I wanted to, to do it in that way was because that documentary, Hot Girls Wanted, had just come out, which, <laughs> yeah, which looked at a very sleazy corner of porn in Miami, not, not in LA, and was sort of saying this is this is what porn is, mm-hmm. and I think people in the San Fernando Valley work very hard to create a respectful. Not that there isn't exploitation in the valley, of course there is, but by and large, you know, a lot of well, certainly all the people I hung out with in the valley, people like um, Mike Quasar and Casey Calvert, you know, these are sensible, grown-up, mm-hmm. respectful people who who would abhor exploitation as much as anybody so Mm -hmm. um so yeah so for for all of those reasons what you said to me and then me thinking about how girls wanted and how i didn't want to do that and um i'm so glad the other reason by the way that i moved away from i made a very sort of conscious intentional decision to move away from public shaming because i could very easily have become pigeonholed and that's the rest of my life Mm -hmm. i mean people wanted me to talk about that more than anything the Justine Sacco story, sometimes I felt like, like like, the Brothers Grimm, like I was coming out with a fairy tale that children just want to hear over and over again. <laughs> and tell me be again the story of the woman on the plane. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and it never stopped. And so what happened was I was... When I wrote the psychopath test, all, all my books, all my previous books, I thought, OK, I've spent all of this time uh, writing this book I should now talk about it for as much as people want me to. Like, as much as people want me to talk about psychopaths, I'll do it. So I went on a psychopath test publicity tour. Um, and I just didn't understand like why do authors not want to do this? Like, you know, you're proud of this book. Talk about it as much as possible. Get people Mm. to, you know, read the book. Um, and it reached its finite end, maybe after a couple of months of the book coming out. Mm. People didn't want me to talk about psychopaths anymore um and, and i moved on with my life in a, what felt like a very you know positive way um with say so being publicly shamed i thought the same thing oh I'll, I'll talk about this topic you know until people don't want to talk about it. People don't want me to talk about it. nobody ever didn't want me to talk about it anymore mm. i i would st- I, it's it's i got in- interview request after interview request and it carries on to this day i had to make the very conscious decision that no i'm not talking about this anymore um and people, somebody said to me quite recently, so why, you know, you were, you know, you were the sort of grandfather of talking about public shaming and cancel culture. It was like you, you you know, between me and Monica Lewinsky, we sort of started this whole thing. So why, you know, am I not a fool for opting out of it? I could... uh Right. It's, it's but, a- but I just, I didn't want to get typecast. I didn't like the stress of it. The other thing is, if you start seeing, you know, quote-unquote, you know, woke illiberalism everywhere, then you kind of end up becoming kind of a dick, if that's all you care about, especially when Trump's president. But mm-hmm. like, you know, to be honest, again, this is going to, you know, I've been got into trouble for alluding to this before too, but, you know, if you've got the capital insurrection happening... And you've got, you know, annoying people on the left trying to do, you know, try, try to make the world a little bit better, but in a somewhat annoying authoritarian way. Mm-hmm. I just don't think there's any, there's no competition. Like, right, we've right. tried to dismantle <laughs> democracy. Yeah. So it's like, um, yeah. and yeah, yes, all authoritarianism is bad. And now that Biden's president, I feel more akin to looking at the problems on on the left. But when Trump was president, I just thought it was weird for people to fixate on on the sins of
0: the left when something so serious and terrible was happening in in, in yeah. the White House. I mean I think people were just sort of infused with the with the fervor you know I mean it, and and also just the the failure you know the the anger at their own sort of failure and in some ways it turned out to be good I mean a lot of at least the initial aspects of me too you know came out of I think a lot of this anger at this person you know ascending to power but mm-hmm. I, but you know you did keep talking about public shaming right because last days of August is I mean there's so yeah. much of that in there and i i remember yes. you know when that when that first started happening i'm and i'm sorry i did this to you but i was like don't do this like i sent you oh yeah and it was because um uh I was talking to, I mean, I was just talking to so many people who are calling me crying, right? And like one of the performers who had sent like a really mean tweet to her before, he was like, uh, he called me like terrified for his life. He was like, oh, there are people outside, like hit her her boyfriend is in a biker gang, they're going to kill me, like all this sort of stuff. Like, and I don't know how much- Oh, I- whose boyfriend? uh, August's boyfriend. And I, I, I don't know that that was true, but it was his like Um. imagining of what was happening. He was terrified, you know? And I think like, I, I remember just being this, this total, um, yeah, this tangle that was so horrible and so felt, you know, by so many people that I was like, I remember telling you not to do it. One yeah. because I was like, "How is anybody possibly going to pull this off?" But also, I was like, "It's the, the the nerve is so raw." But then, I mean, you did it well. I mean, so I, well, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, I,
1: I, I pulled. I did pull it off because it, because uh, you know I was so obsessed with getting it right and so worried about getting it wrong. So yeah. I did pull it off. But you know, there's there's a world where I would agree with you that it was too <laughs> it was too hard it was too hard uh, to do. Um, and and it, you know, it, it, it sort of crushed me. Like I didn't, I didn't work for probably a year afterwards because of because of just what a um, just what an ethical struggle it was to to get that story right so you know there was a world where I listened to you and didn't make the show
0: and I probably probably would have been a lot happier to be honest (laughs) (laughs) well no I'm glad I'm glad you did but I I listened to you on um I think it was Russell Brand's show but it was Uh you know there's this moment on there where you said after this you're sitting with your wife somewhere and she says you're very hard on yourself aren't you right like mm-hmm. she like made this comment to you because she'd seen you sort of struggling with the pain that you had experienced while going through this and it kind of collapsed you into this like reevaluation of looking at your at looking at yourself and 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 your life and everything and i i think yeah. i want to maybe just um maybe like have this be the last thing we talk about today which is this um like I had my friend Abby Martin on. Abby's a journalist, you know, and she's she's great. She goes to war zones and all this sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. and I know that people, and and rightly in some way, might say like, oh, if I focus on the pain and the burden and the intensity that Abby carries versus the people, obviously, the people in the war zones have it much worse, you know, that she's reporting on or whatever. But I Mm -hmm. also know that there is a sense of love. We talked about this a lot last time she was on the show, a sense of love in what she does. And so therefore, an acute sense of pain, responsibility, burden, and intensity that she carries, even as she puts the story down and moves on to the next thing. And I suppose you must feel that as well. I mean, I suppose... Even mm. as as open and as funny as your books are and your podcasts are and all that, still like you're walking into pain, people suffering that you feel a responsibility to and then trying to leave it. And so when mm. I heard that comment from your wife and the the, the impact it had on you, I felt, um, I mean, I felt, you know, you and I do different things, but I felt, you know, an alignment with that like fuck like is it is it enough how much of this with me is, is staying with me all the time and how much yeah. do I feel in, in the downtime which I don't allow for you know in my own life you know yeah well I
1: think that story in particular the last days of August in particular it's funny when I look back on other incredible tragic stories that I've done I'm being completely honest like, so for instance when I did uh, Ruby Rich years ago like 20 years ago Um, I hung out with uh, Rachel Weaver, whose father was Randy Weaver, and, you know, their family was, they were a family of white separatists up in the mountains in Idaho, and it all went wrong, and Mm -hmm. the FBI killed, the ATF and the FBI killed a number of the family members. Um, I mean, just the most tragic, tragic story. But when I look back on that story... um, I I just remember what 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 a nice time it was to be hanging out in Montana with Rachel and getting on well. And we stayed in a lovely you know motel near the river. And um and I did the story and I was very good at compartmentalising it. And actually at the same time, my my GP, my doctor in London, said to me, "I saw your documentary last night about David Hike. Like this must have a huge psychological impact on you. Like you know you need to really care. You know." do some self-care if you're hanging out with these, you know, terrible people. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, I live for hanging out with people <laughs> like David Icke. Like, I love, like, you know, going into these, you know crazy places and telling these you know absurd narratives and you know this is like the reason i I'm, i thought my doctor was nuts so so i'd be lying i would certainly i would be lying if i said that i always came away from tragic stories feeling depressed i, I don't quite quite often i come away from this you know because my job is to is to structure is to is to structure the story mm-hmm. and i get so involved in story structure with non-fiction story structure i i i, I I love it so much, you're know, sitting there thinking that that i ultimately it's a pleasurable the whole thing is pleasurable to me, and also you know journalists we don't we shouldn't be like um you know we we shouldn't blub all the time you know it's not our job um so uh but there was something about that particular story maybe it was. You know, it was the incredible complexity of the story, and realizing, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. Like I'm, I really need to figure out the ethics of this, and, and the ethics of this are impossible because I'm approaching people. I didn't, I didn't plan any of this; it's just the way that the story unfolded. But you know, I'm, I'm asking people hard questions, in, and and she's only been dead a month or two months, mm-hmm. and you know, it was it was a very thorny. Um, story and and for so many reasons and um and you know it, it it almost gets into who's responsible for somebody taking their life and and the answer is you know you can't do that you know you you can't meddle with people's lives in that way but yet this was the hand of cards that i had been dealt because i didn't know that this was the story when i went into it this was how the story unfolded and so i was left with the responsibility of trying to figure out how to do this in an ethical way and that that just you know sort of collapsed my brain and and um i was exhausted anyway i was working too hard and etc
0: but but um so there was other reasons too but um so yeah, the pain did. of the the community that you had sort of gotten to know a bit you know also just mm-hmm. was probably refracting in your psyche
1: oh absolutely i mean were, these were lovely people including some of the people who tweeted negative things about August. Yeah. i mean just Jess, jessica drake i think is a really lovely woman i got to know no. her well <laughs> and you know so i'm dealing with really nice people and and yet you know i'm i'm the story is about trying to figure out why, the, you know, like, like that old play and in spectacles, the story is trying to figure out why this is, you know, and I didn't want anyone to come out of this story. Feeling, well, I mean, it was one or two people, I suppose, you know, who, um, who I felt, you know, they behaved in such a way towards her that I don't have, I don't feel responsible. I mean, for instance, the person who treated her poorly on a, on a set a few months before she died. Mm-hmm. Um, but for most of the people, I, I felt a huge sense of responsibility for, and and so yeah, and I liked them a lot, you know, and and um, so it was very very hard,
0: and and I couldn't, I couldn't just stop. I, no. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's like I'm remembering, <clears throat> it's interesting though where the pain goes, like it's kind of like I was talking about with where the certainty goes, because when I I read Men Who Stare at Goats when it came out, and I, I know you, it's weird, I, I get the sense that you don't feel fondly about that book, but to me it's one of my favorite things that you've written and that there's a part in it where um you talk about someone being people being dissolved in an acid and um and the, and the sounds of scream, like the feeling this palpable feeling when you go into these places and i remember putting the book down and just crying i mean this is whenever it came oh. out so i don't remember how old i was but i just put it down in uh, 2004 just, it came out okay so yeah so gosh, how, I can't do math, but whatever, but I, but I just, I set the book down and I just started crying and crying. And so I think sometimes the, the pain that might've gone into you in some yeah. of these, it, it comes through, you know, and, and the reader feels it, or you're, you know, whatever, wherever, it wherever it goes. And so, you know, um, i'm not saying that you're <laughs> by the way i'm not saying oh you're asking other people to hold it for you but it finds its footing it finds its place so if it doesn't land in you which is good because it can't every time or you would fall apart it does land it does land somewhere i mean obviously yeah. some of the stories in lost at sea are not going to like you know devastate people or whatever they'll just make people laugh but yeah yeah but once in a while it's
1: true no what you what you say is true i mean there's that famous janet malcolm line which i don't really agree with what she says uh, she died recently she said i got that book on the shelf i'm sure i do um i wish i could remember the exact quote it's something like you know every journalist knows yeah mm. what that they're, that they're con artists yeah yeah i think she uses the word con con artists or con men yeah. um, now i don't think that's true but i do think that every journalist should know that we have the potential to be muggers you know uh, and you right. and you don't and you really don't want to do that like it, and I'm um, most certainly the older that I get the more I feel it is that it's um you know you you want to leave a small footprint you don't want to hurt people
0: yeah well there is a certain kind of I mean you're talking about the the, the people that you talk with but there is a certain kind of agility as a writer that is like okay who's going to feel the pain here who's going to laugh who's going to cry I mean I, I you know, my 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 book, which comes out next year, like it doesn't come out till July. So it's not really worth talking about too much right now, but it's like the, the, it's extremely painful book, like extremely painful novel. And when I was reading it over again for the edits, you know, I was like, fuck, like you get this sense of what you want in the world and why it's there and and why you're putting it there. That can be really frightening as someone who's creating things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: Yeah. 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 It's true. Um, You forget, you know, especially when you're in a room on your own writing, (laughs) uh, you forget that anyone's ever going to read it. I was on Twitter this morning, like I don't tweet anymore, but I still go on Twitter and see what other people are tweeting. And somebody tweeted a photograph that they took. They were on a plane watching one of my TED Talks and making notes for my TED Talk. And I was thinking, you know, that never crosses my mind when I'm writing something (laughs) that anyone's ever going to read it let alone take notes um because right. you're in a bubble when you're writing so so yeah but but um um but then you put something very painful out into the world or you know difficult and then there are consequences <laughs> and you have to uh,
0: <laughs> good luck everybody
1: <laughs> yeah. um, i think the best honestly i think i do think that with the whole last days of august Sort of mini collapse that I had. It was some. It was disproportionate, actually. Like there's something in mental health called scrup- scrupulosity, mm-hmm. which is. um, I think Martin Luther had it. um it, It's 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 a it's an it's an over obsession with ethical matters. Mm-hmm. And I and I actually think I said this to, to Louis Theroux when I did his show that I think you know you cannot as a journalist you cannot care enough about a story but also you can care too much, like right? right. it's not healthy. You, you know, you need to find a balance.
0: Yeah, You can dehumanise yourself ultimately if you do that, which is really yeah. frustrating. Or um, just eat yourself
1: up with irrational anxiety, which is what I was also doing with the last day. Now, I'm not saying that my anxiety was entirely irrational, but I would say that I was worrying about the last days of August so much that it, that it veered into the realm of rational. I mean, I'm very glad that I did because I think the story is is... Mm-hmm. You know, ethically, I think I, I did end up telling it quite quite impeccably. And I don't think I would have done that if I didn't suffer from scrupulosity in the same way that Martin Luther probably wouldn't have started the Lutherian church. And let's
0: yeah, it, yeah, I often the think, of, of, you, I often think of you first. and he in the same in the same way. <laughs> <Yeah, period>. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, John, listen, I, there are so many things I want to talk with you about, and I know we're we're at time now, and I hope that we'll have a chance to talk more and uh, and and go further with some of these things, um, but I just you know I, I miss seeing you around. I used to see oh, you around a bit I'm more, and I. And, still uh, in Dublin, right? Yeah, and yeah. How how nice.
1: Um, <laughs> well, I've not I haven't left New York State now in.
0: In, in 18 months all right <laughs> well first stop can be here um yeah but I, I love talking okay. with you and it's really nice to finally have you on the show and uh and to get a chance to talk about these sorts of things so thank you so well, much
1: Carter it's a, it's a delight and I, and I really don't think I ever would have made the butterfly effect if, if we hadn't had those conversations so I'm I'm very grateful for that like i wasn't thinking about porn as a subject at all so um and i'm so proud of i'm so immensely proud of the butterfly effect um um fact
0: thank you for staying in that direction <laughs> you i mean it is aside from this, this book porn work by my friend heather berg it is the only thing written or created by an outsider that about porn that's good so i mean thank you for making it and for your patience and also for your compassion for everybody that you write about so thank you so much john well thank you connor and thank you everybody for listening bye now